Welcome to Inside Politics. I'm Phil Mattingly in today for Dana. The Friday before Christmas, it's supposed to be slow, but there is no shortage of major news right now, including a new report about pressure the then president put on local officials in Michigan after the 2020 election. But first, at any moment, the Supreme Court could announce whether it's fast-tracking a decision on Donald Trump's claim that he's immune from prosecution for trying to overturn the 2020 election. Prosecutors want a quick decision so they can move forward with the trial. Trump wants to delay it as much as possible. We start things off with CNN's Caitlin Polans, who's in Washington. Caitlin, what's so striking here is it may seem weedsy or procedural, but my goodness, the stakes here could not be higher. They are. I can't resist getting into the weeds, but on this, <laughs> let's step back because it is a really big deal what's happening here. And that was became so apparent in the way that the Justice Department wrote about this issue to the Supreme Court yesterday. They wrote that this issue of presidential immunity is so important for the country that someone needs to decide it definitively, and that would be the Supreme Court, and that is why they should skip the intermediary court, the D.C. Circuit, and go right to SCOTUS, because what the Justice Department says, they say, these are the words, an issue of great constitutional moment. That is this question of whether Donald Trump is immune for pro from prosecution, from sitting trial, because he was the president. And what the Supreme Court ultimately decides here is how we as a country will understand the presidency, how we understand the Constitution. It's never been tested in this way before. There's never been a former president on trial before. Of course, Phil, we are waiting for the Supreme Court to act in some way. There is no predicting when they will respond on whether or not they're going to take this case, whether they're going to address this question. There is a question of trial timing for Trump, but it's the Supreme Court. They can do whatever they want. Yeah, but it is very clear it could happen as soon as today. You know, Caitlin, we constantly talk about kind of the car crash of the politics in the legal here. Trump's got various teams of lawyers working on various criminal and civil cases. It seems like everything's running into one another as we head into 2024. It is. Phil, there's so many times where we're talking about the trial schedule for next year for Donald Trump, you know, when he's going to physically need to be in court or be on trial, either in a civil proceeding or a criminal case. But actually, there's a ton of things that have to happen before trial in all of these cases, the Eugene Carroll case, the Supreme Court reviews, what happens with the question of whether he can be on the ballot and the 14th Amendment in various states like Colorado. And so now there is a moment where his lawyers are furiously at work in several different aspects and having to come to conclusions of what they say in court. Is that going to be different than what Trump says on the campaign trail? Just an example of this. Um, one of the contradictions is that he has to argue that he might not be an official office holder of the U.S. in Colorado, but at the same time, he wants the protection of the official office holder of the presidency in this immunity case. So a lot of things colliding even before we get to the trial schedule. Caitlin Polance, we, we are one and the same on the weeds, my friend. Thank you very much. Now over to Michigan, where the Detroit News has obtained audio of a call from 2020 between Donald Trump and Republicans on, local, on a local canvassing board. It sheds new light on how the then president was pressuring minor local officials to help him overturn the election. I spoke with the reporter behind that story this morning. There are investigators at multiple levels looking into the pressure and the effort by Donald Trump and his supporters to overturn the election in Michigan. And this, the, these recordings seem to fit with a lot of other information that we have already. 
Now, CNN has not heard the audio or independently verified it, but notably, there have been no denials from the participants. CNN's Marshall Cohen has much more on this story. Marshall, I went back and was reading all of our clips from that time. Your byline is on all of them uh, and everything since. What else in this report makes this call so critical right now? Hey, Phil, it seems like this call maybe was only 10 minutes long, but there was a lot in there and a lot of it very damning for Donald Trump. And it could factor into the criminal case that you were just talking about with Caitlin. So look, this is November 2020. Trump lost Michigan. He lost it by more than 150,000 votes. But he was trying to convince anyone that he could get on the phone to violate their, their oath of office and block certification of a lawful election. That's why he was on the phone with these local election board officials. Let me read for you a few quotes that the Detroit News published from this call. First one here, Donald Trump, quote, you can't let these people take our country away from us. Everybody knows Detroit is crooked as hell. These were the county commissioners in Wayne County, which is home to Detroit and obviously a massive Democratic stronghold. That's where Joe Biden gets all his votes that propelled him to victory in Detroit. Also, Phil, Ronna McDaniel, she was the RNC chairwoman, still is today. She's from Michigan. She was on the call, too. Listen to what she told uh, or not. Listen, I'll read for you what she told the officials. She said, do not sign it, referring to the official election certification. Do not sign it. We will get you attorneys. And then Trump says, we'll take care of that. OK, wow. Why would you need an attorney if you're not doing anything wrong? They went on to say uh, Trump in the call, quote, how could anybody sign something when you have more voters than people? Again, referring to his false claim that uh, the election in Detroit was rigged. Phil. All right, Marshall Cohen, much more on this to come, I'm sure. Thank you. For more, I want to bring in CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez and CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson. Joey, I want to start with you because I, I think for people who woke up to this this morning or read it last night online, uh, they probably thought that that sounds really familiar. And if you thought that, well, here's another call that happened. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find... Uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. That is one piece of a very long call with the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. And that call has been mentioned and is central to two legal cases the president is now facing. Joey, is this going to play a role in the January 6th investigation and the indictment that, Jack, uh, that the special counsel brought? So the short answer is that it depends. OK, and let me tell you why. First of all, big picture, Phil, it depends upon whether or not the president has immunity from prosecution and, you know, which case it will not play any role because the Supreme Court, if they take the case, will opine that the president is acting in his official capacity and therefore there's immunity. There will be no prosecution. However, should that not be the case and the president goes on trial, there are two ways to spin this narrative. Prosecutors will use this as damning evidence. They will use it to suggest that the president was into meddling, the president was involved overly, the president was engaged in a conspiracy in order to overturn an election that was democratically held, where there was no proof of any fraud whatsoever, and he was getting others to do his bidding to hold up the process and was acting in a lawless capacity. On the other hand, his defense team will say, what are you talking about? The president has an obligation in good faith, believing the election to be stolen, to speak to anyone and everyone to see 
and to make the determination that it was not. And to the extent that he had a reasonable belief that there were votes that were amiss, it was his duty and obligation in his official capacity to make that call and to state his point of view. So those will be the competing options. Which one ultimately resonates will be up to a jury, Phil, if we get there. You know, Evan, uh, I think it's important to, to think back and remember, that's why I was reading all of Marshall's clips and you were involved in those as well. Um, so much happened in that time period that I think a lot of people have started to gloss over it a little bit or maybe think that this was just kind of par for the course. If you look at the timeline there, these two canvassers voted against certification. Then after major public uh, pressure, they've changed their votes to vote for it. Then the Trump call happened, which we knew a call had happened. We didn't know what it was. They denied there was any pressure. Doesn't seem like that's the case. Then they tried to change right. uh, where they were on it, but it was too late. There was no legal mechanism. When you see all of this, and obviously you've been covering uh, the special counsel very closely, what do you think they're thinking right now? Well, look, I mean, we don't know whether they have this recording. We know that they've, there's not a rock that they have not turned over as part of this investigation. And I think uh, if they certainly if they did not have it, they are certainly making the, the, the appropriate calls today to try to obtain it. Because, Phil, it, it, it fits into the pattern that they make the case in, as part of the indictment here. They talk about how this was part of a conspiracy to pressure state officials to try to overturn the election. And specifically, it goes to the to one of the charges, which talks about uh, the effort by the former president to deny people their right to have their votes counted. That's where this comes in handy for prosecutors. And again, if we get, as Joey points out, if we do get to a trial and we, if the prosecutors are actually standing in front of a jury, this helps make that case because it's part of the pattern. We know that uh, Trump and his allies were pushing for example, Pennsylvania, uh, local officials in Pennsylvania to disregard the entire vote in Pennsylvania. You know, now have this example in Michigan. Uh, you know, of course, chapter and verse from uh, from Georgia. And we also know of calls in Arizona. This is these are the key states. These are the states which swung the presidency. And that's what Donald Trump was trying to do, according to what prosecutors are, are saying. One of, most importantly, though, I think Look, we in the United States have gone around the world for years sort of saying that no one is above the law. And the next few weeks, really, we're going we're gonna to find out whether that's true or not, because the Supreme Court is going to tell us whether this is a trial that can go forward based on what uh, Jack Smith has alleged. Yeah, that's such an important 30,000 foot frame. And Joey, to that point, uh, do we have any idea, at least there's not a lot of precedent here, but in terms of what the Supreme Court might do? So we don't, right? We think that uh, we may know based upon how they've ruled before, but I would hasten to add the following. We do know that it's six to three, it's conservative. But remember what the Supreme Court does, Phil, is they establish precedent. And in establishing the precedent, do you really want to establish a precedent that says that the president is immune from prosecution, even when they're acting in a way which could be perceived and is largely believed to be in a non-official capacity to interfere with, to pressure and to otherwise have people 
have a different view of the election, right? And so I think what the Supreme Court does is going to be telling, but it will be precedent setting. And so if they look to protect Trump, if it's six to three, you can't just look at Trump. You have to look into the future at who else would benefit from having a wholesale immunity. And so to Evan's point, if we're really going to value everyone being equal under the law and the application of the law applying to everyone, then I think the Supreme Court has to be careful. But I will not say that simply because they're six to three, they will vote for Trump. I think they will take that, you know, much more seriously than that and hopefully make a ruling predicated upon the law and the facts. Yeah, it's an important point, a moment of enormous consequence. Evan, Joey, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. And as we go to break, stay tuned. We have some breaking news out of the United Nations. We'll fill you in on what's going on next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. The breaking news, the U.N. Security Council has passed a resolution regarding the war on Gaza. It's been subject to days of intense debate behind the scenes negotiations. CNN's Alex Marquardt has been closely following this story for us. The behind the scenes has been fascinating. They now have an outcome. Walk us through what happened, Alex. Yeah, Phil, these have been some fierce negotiations evidenced by the fact that this vote that we've just seen happen at the United Nations was delayed several times this week. It has now finally happened. This resolution has been passed. 13 countries voting in favor of this humanitarian aid resolution for Gaza. Two countries abstaining, including the United States. Now, Phil, the big picture here is Washington, the Biden administration, wanted to get this resolution to a place where they would not feel like they had to vote no, where they where they would not veto this resolution, uh, a resolution that is d- designed to help the people of Gaza. So uh, the negotiations were uh, tough, primarily with uh, the United Arab Emirates. Um, and it was the, the differences were mainly over uh, a monitoring mechanism for the aid going into Gaza. The United States felt what was being proposed by Egypt and the UAE 
was too cumbersome, would slow things down. Um, so what, so the, but a, the negotiations got to a place where the U.S. felt like they could support the resolution. And what appears to have happened, Phil, in terms of why the U.S. abstained in, instead of voting for it, is that this resolution, as Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador who you see there on your screen, she just said that it fails to condemn what Hamas did. And she said she will never understand why some members of the council will not uh, will not condemn uh, Hamas for the uh, atrocities on October 7th. But she did say that obviously this is a, 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 a great uh, resolution that will support the people of Gaza. It will help not only get aid into Gaza, but it will help it be distributed. Uh, but the but the UN, U.S. today, Phil, not voting in favor. They are abstaining. But at the same time, that is a success for the U.N. Security Council. They are able to say that this resolution Supporting the people of Gaza has now been passed, Phil. Alex, can we, can we take a step back? Your reporting on this has been uh, so informative and helpful for me. And I know talking to administration officials, this isn't the first time that there have been intensive talks related to how the U.N. Security Council was going to operate in the Hamas-Israel war. Practically, what does this do? How does this matter? Why is there so much effort going into it? Well, it's an excellent question because at the end of the day, um, this is not something that Israel necessarily needs to respect. It is, as Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the ambassador, just said, this puts the weight of the U.N. Security Council behind this resolution. Um, and this is something that, that, these sec- that, that the U.N. would like to see happen in terms of more aid uh, getting into Gaza in, in a much more uh, in a much smoother way. The complication here, Phil, was that Egypt, I'm told, uh, wanted to put in place a, a mechanism, as it's being called, to make sure that the, it was the UN that was monitoring this aid uh, going and essentially putting a lot more uh, weight on what the United Nations had to do here. In terms of efficiencies, I'm told that would have actually slowed things down. It's understandable that, that Egypt wanted less responsibility here, but at the same time, it was not as efficient as the U.S. thought it could be. There have already been all these complications around that Rafah border crossing and in terms of the number of trucks that can get into Gaza. So the U.S. focus here was to make this, this as efficient as possible. Uh, they do feel like they have landed in a place uh, that has made that mechanism less complicated. But of course, uh, the, the proof will be in the pudding, Phil, in, ter- in terms of whether that aid actually gets the people who so desperately need it right now. Yeah, it's such a good point. Alex Marquardt, thank you. And up next, Nikki Haley's tricky balancing act when it comes to her party's presidential frontrunner. Anti-Trumpers think I don't hate him enough. Pro-Trumpers think I don't love him enough. The reality is I just call it like I see it. As Nikki Haley tries to build a coalition of voters looking for a Trump alternative, she's getting pushback for not being anti-Trump enough. Our former president is just a grave danger to the country and to the Christian church. And my concern is that by people not saying that out loud, we're making it seem like it's okay. And that it's normal for people to talk like he talks. I don't think it's good for the country for Donald Trump to become president again. I've made that very clear. The problem is what I have faced, anti-Trumpers think I don't hate him enough. Pro-Trumpers think I don't love him enough. The reality is I just call it like I see it. It's not personal for me. What is personal is I don't want my kids to grow up like this. I don't like the discourse that we have. I don't like the chaos and the insanity we feel like we're in. I want to bring in my panel, political panel on this uh 
very important and newsy Friday. The Cook Political Reports, Amy Walter, New York Times, Ested Herndon, and Molly Ball of the Wall Street Journal. Um, guys, welcome. Um, I'm so stoked that so many awesome people are hanging out with me on a Friday afternoon before Christmas. Amy, I, I want to start with you because I feel like there were two moments yesterday that really captured everything about the Republican primary. That and then something we'll get to in a minute uh, uh, that Ron DeSantis was talking about. But what you saw in that clip with Nikki Haley is kind of the, the question of the primary, which is, can you walk that line and, and beat the front runner? That's exactly right. I mean, this has been the challenge for every non-Trump candidate since the beginning that even if you make the argument that Trump's core support isn't maybe as deep or as big as it looks in the polls, the reality is you've got to be able to put together two coalitions in order in a one-on-one -on -one contest in order to beat him. And those coalitions are very different, as Nikki Haley pointed out. They're anti-Trumpers, people who are really committed to turning the page. They do not want Donald Trump as the nominee. And those who say, you know, I liked Donald Trump. I'll probably vote for Donald Trump, but I'm willing to look around. Um, I'm a sometimes Trump voter. And finding the issues that bring them together has been really challenging. Ron DeSantis failed at being able to do that. The candidates who've dropped out <laughs> obviously failed to do that. Nikki Haley's trying to make that balance. And the real challenge for her when you look at the polling is she is really still consolidating more of the anti-Trump vote than the sometimes Trump vote. And we're going to see, obviously, we've got Iowa, New Hampshire. New Hampshire has a lot of those anti-Trump voters, have a lot of those voters who are part of the coalition of people who are more friendly to a Haley candidacy. But get outside of New Hampshire and those type of voters, there are fewer and fewer of them as we get into South Carolina and then Super Tuesday. Yeah, it's such a good point. Uh, Molly, I, I want to we'll zero in on New Hampshire in a moment, but uh, Amy mentioned that Ron DeSantis has failed to to kind of do what he set out to do to some degree. And if you want to know how much he has failed in that sense, you look at his support, show the trend line. We've got to pull it up here about where DeSantis was earlier in the year, 33 percent, all the way down to December, where he's at 11 percent. The numbers don't lie. And he made the point uh, in an interview yesterday that part of the issue that he's been dealing with is all of the oxygen has been sucked out of the room by 91 charges against the front runner here. And that comes at the same time that Trump and legal news has rocketed back to the forefront of things with just three plus weeks till the caucuses. Well, sure. I mean, it was interesting in that analysis by Ron DeSantis that he he didn't mention that he's defended Trump on all these charges. So if Trump has gained strength from all of the charges against him, in large part, it's because the candidates who are ostensibly running against him have not used that as an occasion to make the case that they are disqualifying or that they represent some kind of reason uh, that he might be a risky bet for the nomination. Um, but look, I mean, I thought Amy's analysis was spot on. Uh, but what, one thing that was kind of interesting was that it wasn't ideological, right? Trump represents an axis in this primary that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the level of, of conservatism that voters see themselves as having. And that is another place where we've seen DeSantis and Haley make different bets, make different critiques of Trump, uh, and therefore appeal to different constituencies within the Republican Party that, just as Amy was saying, may not be compatible, may not want to be in a room with one another, may not be amenable to this splitting of the difference. So, you know, you have Haley 
who has appealed to more moderate to liberal Republican voters, uh, potentially political independence, which is uh, a big voting block in New Hampshire and a big reason that she has a chance to do well there. Uh, you don't get those people in an Iowa or a South Carolina. And that's part of the reason that DeSantis has instead run to the right, run to Trump's right, making the critique of Trump not a characterological critique like Haley has made, that it's about chaos and, and divisiveness and discourse, but instead saying that he didn't go far enough and he wasn't effective enough at pursuing these sort of very conservative policies. Instead, these are two candidates fighting to be number two that seem to be in different trajectories at the moment. And I think there's no question there's been a rise uh, with Nikki Haley. She got the endorsement in New Hampshire of the very popular governor and Chris Sununu, who keeps saying this is a two-person race. Chris Christie's in the race in New Hampshire, and he's polling. Like, he's got numbers. Does he have to get out for Nikki Haley to really have a chance in New Hampshire? You would think so. And I think that's why you're seeing increasing calls for people on that front. I mean, if this is going to happen for, for Nikki Haley in New Hampshire, a couple of things probably have to break her way. One, being Chris Christie kind of consolidating support or at least uh, trying to get out the race. The other, I would say, is she probably needs to finish above Ron DeSantis in Iowa, which is not something that looks really clear either. I think that the two-person race argument that Governor Sununu is making will become more complicated if Ron DeSantis seems like he has consolidated more evangelical support or others uh, uh, in other parts of the country. That is the argument that DeSantis is trying to make, is that his ceiling is higher than hers. The problem is he has not been a candidate to really co uh, consolidate much of that support. And so Nikki Haley as an individual candidate has really outperformed him. But I would actually say, you know, to the point that others have made, the well, uh, the Republican electorate has been poisoned against Nikki Haley for years now. You know, what Donald Trump has done in this party exists outside of ideology to that point. He's really reoriented the focus so that a lot of Republican base builders are proud from the way they look different than the Bush than the Bush years, are proud of the way they've kind of shunned corporations and, and, and the kind of, uh, uh, kind of war axis that they talk about. And I think that is really what Nikki Haley is up against, is a perception that she represents a kind of pre-2016 version of the Republican Party. So there is ideological policy things that she can do here, but there's a brand that she's up against. And, and it's really one that Donald Trump imposed on the Republican electorate and base. Yeah, trying to get slices of the Republican electorate as part of a coalition to be Trump is problematic when the coalition is Trump to some degree coming up. Yeah. Guys, stay with us. We got a lot more to get into. CNN has brand new statistics about the unprecedented crisis at the Southern border. Does the Biden administration have a plan to deal with it? Stay with us. From executive producers Park Chanuk and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. Well, let's just into CNN. New numbers that underscore the southern border is at a breaking point. Federal authorities are arresting an average of 9,600 migrants a day along the border. It's an unprecedented surge. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez is live for us in the North Lawn of the White House. This is her reporting. Priscilla, I think you can lose the thread here if you're just thinking about numbers. They are so large and so unprecedented. But the toll that this is having on people, it's having on resources. How bad is this? 
Well, that's what makes it so difficult, Phil. The authorities are working with an immigration system that is just incredibly dated. And right now, that is trying to absorb record migration in the Western Hemisphere. So the challenges that the White House faces here are real, and they're not easily solved. And they're both logistical and political. In fact, a poll recently showed that there are 69% of voters disapprove of President Biden's handling of immigration. But what the White House is up against here is those numbers that you just mentioned. An average of 9,600 migrants a day in December. Compare that to November when numbers were at 6,800. And at the time, officials were already saying how understrained they were. And what's uniquely challenging about this particular moment is that migrants are crossing across the U.S. southern border. So multiple regions are being uh, slammed, and that just makes it more difficult for the administration to respond in a quick and an orderly way. Now, again, the reason that this is happening is because of misinformation sped, spread by smugglers, but also because of unprecedented mass migration across the Western Hemisphere that got even worse after the coronavirus pandemic. And so the White House is uh, asking Congress to give them more funds for border security, but Republicans in exchange want more border policy changes, more stricter border measures to get those funds to unlock that money. And so all of this is converging in this very difficult moment for the White House on the cusp of a 2024 presidential election, when inevitably immigration is going to be a key issue that Republicans seize on. And so right now, the challenge for the White House is to try to stem the flow, and they're going to start to do that, or they're attempting to, by sending senior U.S. officials to Mexico next week to work with their Mexican counterparts to try to manage the border as best as they can. Yeah, critical meetings for Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and his team. Priscilla Alvarez, thanks so much. Amy Walter is back with me right now. Amy, on the issue of immigration, look, you can you could spend hours tracking back the last several decades of who's to blame and why this is broken and different migration patterns. All of it would be factual from a purely political context. How much is this going to matter in the months ahead for a general election? It's absolutely critical. And I, I think your framing of that is is right, Phil, which is the bottom line is you could go back 20 years and point fingers at a lot of different uh, politicians and things that have fallen apart. But the reality is when you're the president, the buck stops with you. And your job as president is to solve problems. That's what voters uh, put you there to do. So I think beyond um, the fact that there are real, uh, there's a real legislative logjam, obviously, uh, on this issue, uh, what are the sorts of things that the president, the administration can do from an executive perch to make some changes on the border that are not necessarily going to require Congress signing off on either more funding or uh, the kinds of changes to the law? Um, and I think that's probably where the administration is going to have to spend a great deal of time early uh, in the in the new year trying to uh, make those changes and and show the American public that they have some control of this. Yeah, it's certainly the primary reason that the Secretary of State is heading down to Mexico. I do want to ask you, Amy, you, there are new race ratings from Cook Political Report, which is kind of the gospel for everybody in Washington, shifting two states uh, in the Republican direction uh, from at least where they were. Walk through the why and the, what this means. Yeah, sure. 
So, uh, Phil, as you know, there are just a handful of states that are going to be critical in the 2024 election that will determine who the next president of the United States is. And Michigan and Nevada just sit a little bit to the left in the sense that they've been pretty consistently uh, good for Democrats, with the exception, of course, 2016 in Michigan, 10,000 votes, the difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Donald Trump, of course, winning the state. But what we've seen in these last couple of weeks here are some really fundamental changes, I think, that that make it harder to believe that those two states, uh, Democrats should feel as confident in those two states as they might have been earlier uh, in the year. And and I think you've got the war in Gaza. We know Michigan is a state that has the highest number of Arab Americans in terms of population. That is a, a significant factor in a state where every vote is going to matter. We know the president's low approval ratings, they are across the board. It's not just in red states or, or in true purple states, but in even in some Democratic-leaning states like Michigan, where the top candidate for the Senate in that state, fretting uh, that she will be dragged down in Michigan by the, the president's low approval rating numbers. And finally, of course, New Nevada, big state uh, for Latino voters. Democrats have been draining support for, or Democrat support from those voters has been drained um, since 2016. And we're not seeing a bounce back, at least nationally, uh, from uh, Latino voters to uh, Biden or to Democrats. So all of those factors, Phil, combined to say, you know what, these belong in the same category as Arizona and Georgia and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania states that Biden carried, but by less than 50% of the vote, he did win Michigan and Nevada by 50% in the last election. Yeah. And you would think after 2022, Michigan was starting to move completely away back into the blue wall firmly. And it just, you know, you make a great point. Um, read the Cook Political Report. Your, yours and Dave Wasserman, Jessica Taylor's questions to, that you have for 2024 is most excellent. Amy Walter, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And next, with 10 months to go, what does the Biden campaign need to do that it isn't already? We're going to ask veterans of the Clinton and Obama White House. Stay with us. Well, today, there are more signs of an economy that's strong and actually getting stronger. An important measure of inflation fell last month. I'm not going to bore you with the technical aspects. I would love to actually bore you with the technical aspects, but they won't let me. But this report, uh, the Fed looks at very, very closely. It is a critical report. It also comes at the same time. Consumer confidence is up. The University of Michigan found that consumer sentiment is up nearly 14 percent from November. And yet there's always the but. Every poll out there shows voters aren't giving President Biden credit for any of this. President Biden doesn't seem to be getting credit for any of it all. Six in 10 disapprove of how he handles the economy. So why is there a disconnect? It is the critical question and one that certainly will define the year ahead. To discuss, I'm joined by Democratic strategist uh, Paul Begala, who's a White House advisor to President Clinton, and Sarah Feinberg, an alumna from the Obama White House. Um, you guys have uh, know a thing or two about <laughs> about being an administration, being an administration that's running for re-election. Paul, I want to start with what we've been seeing. This isn't happening in isolation. This is day after day of positive economic news. It seems to be getting at some of the most critical difficulties on the economy the Biden administration has been facing, and yet not getting credit. Why is that? Because he's not doing it right. He's he's bragging when he should be bashing. You know, when two thirds of Americans think you're moving in the wrong direction, they're not in the mood to vote saying, 
thank you. They're in a mood to say, screw you. And he needs to introduce a threat. This is something President Clinton did. He, he said that Dole and Gingrich, Dole Gingrich, he called them every day, were a threat to Medicare, Medicaid, education, and environment. Every day. I still remember that mnemonic, M-M-E-E, Educa- Medicare, Medicaid, education, environment. He needs to say Trump is a threat. He's a threat to your job, your health care, your Social Security, your abortion rights, your Constitution. Instead, he's saying, I did a great job, didn't I? Give me a gold star. It, it's a completely wrong approach. He, he, he has got to be fighting and he's got to introduce an element of threat to his. And that's how he'll get credit for his accomplishments if it's what economists call a loss aversion. If you say you could lose this, people all of a sudden say, well, I kind of like it. But it's- I think it's such a fascinating point because I also think this is a debate inside the White House. And I think to some degree, I've heard the president sides with Paul (laughs) on some of these issues. Sarah, you know, it seems like they're trying to do all of it. Is there a way to thread this needle to kind of get at what Paul's doing if you're on the campaign trail? Yeah, and I think part of the problem is trying to do all of it, right? I think we need to see a little bit more discipline about messaging. So, you know, let's stop looking in the rearview mirror. Look at everything I've done look forward and say, you know what, the economy is improving, all the numbers are great, but I'm not going to talk to you about that because that doesn't mean anything to you. What I'm going to talk to you about is how I'm going to continue to improve things, some real like meat on the bones about how he's going to improve Americans' lives, what he's going to do about health care costs. So not, they're just going to take your Obamacare and your health care, but like, I know you want it, I get it, and here's how we're going to make it better. Like, give them something that, to look forward to. Paul, on the issue of democracy, obviously this is kind of the animating feature of President Biden's 2020 campaign, of his presidency. He's still very keen to talk about it now. Some Democrats say don't focus entirely on that. Where do you think that lands in the scheme of what you should be talking about right now? I think it's vitally important, uh, but it's, it's part and parcel with the, the economic threat, the abortion rights threat, and the democracy threat. You know, uh, I think Democrats had a much better midterm than they would have otherwise because President Biden and Vice President Harris got out there and raised the stakes on the democracy. But it's a pretty simple formula, Phil, and, and it's they got to do seven things. And, and uh, here's a mnemonic. I put them in alphabetical order so they can remember it. Attack, 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 attack. That's it. That's 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 helpful. That, that was clarity. Uh, but to that point, sir, one of the things that I've been trying to think, you, you see when Trump talks about repealing Obamacare, going back to that, which is a massive political loser for Republicans uh, in 2018. And you see him just a couple of days ago talking to a bunch of very wealthy people and saying, I'm going to give you tax cuts. You know, President Obama just lit up the Romney campaign on the 47 percent comment on things like that. And I think the question is, do those things still resonate and matter in a political environment where Trump exists. I think they still matter, but you got to shine a bright light on it. I mean, to Paul's point, you know, you can't talk about everything under the sun. You got to pick and choose what you're going to talk about. and You got to shine a bright light on it so that if there's one thing our Americans are clear on going into the next 10 months, it's that guy's going to give more money to the wealthy. That guy's going to take away my health care. The other guy, the guys in the White House right now is going to improve my health care. He's going to make people pay their fair share. People aren't going to get away with not paying taxes anymore. You know, I'm paying. Why is anybody else paying like you gotta you gotta be you know we've heard this over and over again repeat 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 people start to remember it after seven times seven <laughs> 30 times i mean you gotta just keep going 
Yeah, I, Paul seems to have the repetitive part down. <laughs> Real quick, uh, very quick answers from both of you. We only got about a minute left. Um, is the Biden campaign capable of turning their numbers around in the next 11 months? Oh, 100%. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. All right. That was, <laughs> there is agreement. It's a long road to if go. If they listen but... to Sarah Feinberg, they will. They should and apparently if they, right just let me it. check my notes real quick, Paul, attack, I think is what also they need to do. <laughs> Sarah Feinberg, Paul you Begala. That's it's all always... I want for Christmas is a vicious negative campaign against Donald Trump. That's all I want. I think knowing their team, they're capable of it. That's for sure. Paul, Sarah, thanks guys. Have a wonderful Christmas. And thanks for joining Inside Politics. Seeing the new Central starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.